0: from 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 I'm not commanding you but I want you to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich and here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter Last year you were the best, I'm sorry. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality as it is written. The one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Take your
1: seats. To pray together. Oh Lord, speak. We, we need to hear from you. Uh, we do not just need words of human wisdom or human inspiration. But we need the words of life. And Jesus, you alone have those. Would you help us to believe this morning that we're in this room because you have brought us here? All of us, whether we're here every week or whether this is our very first time, whether this is our very first time ever in a Christian worship service. God, help us to believe that we're here because you brought us here. And would you give us ears to hear all that you would have to say to us this morning. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. My name is Brent. If I haven't met you yet, and I'm one of the pastors here, I would love to get to meet you after the service today over some ice cream. Uh, it's, on, it's on me. Um, actually, it's not. I'm not paying for the ice cream. Yeah, yeah, got you. It's... it's uh, we're glad you're here this morning. If, if you are here for the first time, uh, for the, about the last month, we've been in a series on the spiritual disciplines. And if that's a new language for you, maybe you're, you haven't been around church a whole lot, uh, the spiritual disciplines are simply this. They are God-given practices that lead us into a deeper experience of God's love for us. And, and, and as a result, they cultivate in us A deeper love for God and for others. And I've tried to say this every week that some of us, you know, modern people, we hear the word discipline, and that doesn't sound very fun to us. Uh, Whenever my parents disciplined me, which happened quite a bit as a kid, and I'm from the South, okay, so that means whenever they spanked me, uh, they would always say to me, uh, you know, Brent, this is going to hurt us more than it hurts you and I always thought, I'm I'm not quite convinced of that. You wanna wanna trade seats here and uh, do a little research? Um, We don't like the word discipline, but I want you to hear this. The purpose of spiritual disciplines is always freedom. They are meant to set us free. Uh, Think about what it is like to watch Steph Curry shoot a three. It's amazing, right? How, how, how did he get there? He got there through hours and hours of practice. Hours and hours of discipline. And when you watch Steph Curry shoot a three, you do not think, look how miserable he is. You think, I wish that I could do that. <laughs> like, look how happy he is. Uh, you know, the same is true with a musician, You know, any accomplished musician, they spend years and years in disciplined practice so that they are free to play however they want. And you see, that's what the spiritual disciplines are meant to do. They are meant to set us free so that we might become people who live in the joy and the fullness of God's love and God's kingdom. And if you want more of that in your life, I want you to know this, God has it on offer for you. Anyone who wants more of that in their life God offers it to you and it comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ, but you can grow in it. See, some of you have already crossed that line and you're saying, how do I grow in that? And God says, here they are. Here are these practices to grow you in God's love and in a sense of God's presence in your life. Now, nowhere is this idea of the spiritual disciplines meant to set us free, nowhere is it more true than in the discipline that we're looking at today, which is generosity. We're going to talk about money today, and some of you who brought friends, you've already turned, turning next to them right now, and you're saying, I'm sorry, should have come last week. Uh, Actually, last week was on fasting, so that was kind of hard too. Next week's going to be awesome. Dave is preaching on community, I think, so uh, come come next week. But but, you know, people get, I joke, but people get very nervous when pastors talk about money, and I, I want you to know something, Jesus talks a lot about money. He talks about money probably more than he talks about anything else. So we need to talk about money. But Jesus does not talk about money because he wants something from you. God does not need your money. He's doing just fine. Jesus does not talk about money because he wants something from you. He wants something for you. And you know what he wants? He wants you to be free. He wants you to be free. If you really want to be free, you have to learn how to be generous in life. And you know what's really interesting is that even secular research tells us this. Uh, Christian Smith, he's a sociologist, he teaches at Notre Dame, and he has done extensive research on generosity, and he says this, he says, generosity is paradoxical. Those who give, receive back. By spending ourselves for others' well-being, we enhance our own standing, In letting go of some of what we own, we better secure our own lives. By giving ourselves away, we ourselves move toward flourishing. This is not only a philosophical or religious teaching, but it is a sociological fact. And what Christian Smith has discovered in his research is that when you take people who practice generosity in their life and those who don't, those who practice generosity are far healthier and happier people in every way. He says, when you look at every dimension, every category, when you look at a person's happiness, when you look at their physical health, when you look at their sense of meaning and purpose, when you look at their mental health in terms of anxiety and depression, virtually every dimension, those who are generous, were more well-off than those who weren't. And so there is no better place to talk about this this discipline of generosity uh, then the passage we're looking at today. Now, there's a lot of passages that we could look at, but I, I think this may be the most practical and the most explicit. And so here's what I want to do today. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at some principles of generosity, and then we're going to look at a major problem when it comes to generosity. And then we're going to look at how we can actually overcome the problem. All right? So some principles a problem and then how we can overcome the problem. So first, uh, some principles of generosity. And there are two. And we see both of them in this passage. And you can only become generous as you learn to embrace both of these. Here's the first. The first principle is that all, all of your money is a gift. All of your money is a gift. Every penny that you have is a gift. So a little context to what's happening. This is this is kind of a, a long passage. It's a little like wordy in places. I want to encourage you to keep your worship guides on you, because we're gonna be referring back to it a lot. But let me set the scene for you. What what's happening is Paul is writing to the church in the city of Corinth. Hence the name Corinthians. He's writing to the Corinthian Christians in the city of Corinth. Now the city of Corinth was a port city which meant that it was a city of great commerce. And so what we, what we know from history is that these Christians in Corinth were actually on the wealthier side of things. And what Paul is doing is he is actually writing them a letter asking them to give money to Christians in Judea because there's been this great famine in Judea. And I want you to notice that when Paul writes this letter and he starts asking these Corinthian Christians for money, he gets very specific in his request. He's saying, look, I want you to give proportionately. So look at uh, chapter 8, verse 12. We've got two chapters in here, but chapter 8, verse 12, uh, which is that first section, he says each person should give according to their means. So he's saying it's going to look different for some of you. Some of you have a lot of money and some of you have a little bit of money. And it's going to look different. And then he talks about giving intentionally. If you look at chapter 9, verse 7, he says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. And what Paul is saying is, hey, don't just show up to church and when the plates pass, see what you've got, you know, in your wallet or purse that day. Paul is saying, I want you to sit down and actually think about this. You need to think about your money. And you need to be intentional in your giving. And then uh, if you go all the way to 1 Corinthians chapter 16... Verse 2, Paul says that, that we're to set aside money on the first day of every week to give it away. That, that's Paul's way of saying you ought to be giving regularly. Now, Paul, this is, Paul does not say, I want you to consider giving. I want you to think about giving. Paul says, You need to do this, and here's how you need to do it. Now, If somebody came into this room this morning and started talking to us like this, we would all be thinking, who does this person think they are trying to tell me what to do with my money? The radical claim of Christianity, the radical claim of Christianity is that there is someone in this room telling you that this morning. And it's not Paul. And it's not me, but it is the Lord of heaven and earth himself. Over and over and over again in the Bible, God says, Your money's not your money. Your money is a gift. And we just need to pause right here because some of us are saying, What do you mean it's a gift? I went to school for it, I worked hard for it, I earned it. It is my money. Okay, well, let's, let's think about that for a second. How did you earn it? Well, first, you're alive. You kind of have to be alive to make money. But how much credit can you actually take for that? You know, life itself is a gift. And then how about this? Think, consider the circumstances and the talents that you were given at birth. You know, if you were born into chattel slavery in the 17th century, you could have worked just as hard as you have worked now, and you would not have nearly as much as you have now. See, life is far too complex. It is far too complex to say that money and success comes down to individual choices and hard work. There's so many factors involved. When you were born, the family that you were born into, the parents who raised you, the access that you had to education, the teachers who encouraged you, the communities that supported you. And see, this is why 1 Corinthians 4 verse seven says, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? So maybe you've been successful, but you've done it with the gifts, the circumstances and the talents and the life that has been given to you. And this is why God says over and over and over again, your money is not your money. Your money is a gift. It's actually God's money. and he, 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 he gives it to you to steward it. That's the first principle. Here's the second one. The second principle of generosity is that is that generosity is the rule of giving. It's the rule. Now, the rule in the Old Testament was the tithe. God said, I want you to give 10% of everything that you have, and you can find that all over the Old Testament. And I, I know some of us hear that and we think 10%. That is crazy. You know, do you know what I'm paying for rent? I don't think God meant that for people in... In Oakland, You know, like 10%. Um, all right, here's the deal. When you come to the New Testament, there is no command to tithe. You, you actually, you cannot find it a single time. You will not find that rule in the New Testament. There's not a single place in the New Testament that commands any sort of percentage. In fact, look at Paul in the very next verse, in the, in the very first verse, excuse me. Paul says, He's talking about money and he says, I'm not commanding you. And I think that's really interesting. Because Paul was not afraid of commanding people to do stuff. There's a lot of commands that Paul has in his letters. He commands us to live in unity. He commands us to be kind and compassionate to one another. He commands us to to not gossip and to not slander. Paul is not afraid of commanding things, but here when it comes to money, he says, I'm not, I'm not commanding. Any sort of percentage. And some of you are like, you know what? I kind of like this guy, Paul. I, I, you know, like, I've always kind of been bothered by him, but, but, but I'm kind of getting on board with Paul right now because there's no percentage. When we see that there is no percentage, we automatically assume that it's less than 10%. But I want you to look at the rest of that verse That very first verse, Paul says, I'm not commanding you, but I wanna test the sincerity of your love. How do you know if somebody really loves you? You know, if somebody comes to you and says, What is the least amount that I have to do for you? Do you feel very loved? Can you imagine a marriage like that? Can you imagine a parent saying that to the child? What's the least amount that I've gotta do? for you. That is not when you feel loved. You feel loved when somebody comes to you and says, how far do I need to go? Whatever you need, consider it done. You need someone to show up in the middle of the night? I'll be there. You need somebody to take you to the airport? I'll be there. You know what? You know how when somebody really loves you? When, when they're willing to take you to SFO. SFO, not Oakland. <laughs> See, Oakland's 10%. SFO is all the way. Right? That's always the first question. When somebody isn't it funny when somebody's like, hey, can I get a ride to the airport? And you're like, that means S, that automatically means SFO, when they're not telling you which one. You're like, I'm getting suckered into this. Okay, look, here's the point. The rule, the rule of giving in the New Testament, the rule of giving in the New Testament goes from law to love. It goes from tithe to generosity. It goes from what is the least amount that I have to give to how much can I give. And one of my favorite examples of this is a story in Luke chapter 19. It's the story of a very wealthy man named Zacchaeus. And he meets Jesus. He becomes a Christian. What happened to Gotti happened to Zacchaeus. And what's really interesting is that the first thing that that Zacchaeus does in response to becoming a Christian is not go to church. (laughs) And the first thing he does is not pray more. The first thing that he does is he gives away 50% of all that he has. And you know what Jesus says? He says, today salvation has come to this man. See, one of the best indicators that you have actually encountered Jesus, that Jesus has come into your life, is that you're generous, is that you're generous. Do you know that this is what the first Christians were known for? They were known for their generosity. We have a letter from the second century. It was a letter that was written to the Roman emperor uh, Hadrian and it said this, talking about Christians. It said, they love one another, and he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they they take him into their own homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is any among them that is poor and needy, any who have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O king is their manner of life, and verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the most of them. The early church was known for their generosity. I just want to ask us this morning, what if that's what our church was known for? What if when people thought about this church, the thing that came to mind for them was how generous we are? People who said, you know what, I don't believe, I don't believe what those people on the corner of 17th and Franklin believe, but they give away more than anybody else in this city. Wouldn't you want to be a part of a church like that? I want to be a part of a church like that. So let's do it. You got the principles. Everybody good? No, you're not. That's, no, I'm setting you up. Okay, we're not good, actually. We are not good. We are not good. If you're good, put your money in the back, in the box, and you can go ahead and leave. But if you're not good, stick around, because I'm not good. Because principles are not enough. You know why? Because there is a major problem. There's a major problem when it comes to generosity. And let's, what's the problem? Well, let's start with what it's not. The problem is not money. It's really important to say that, because some of us think that, The problem is money. And we think that the problem with the world is rich people. Let me tell you, I went to a fundraising dinner for City Team last night, and it was amazing. God is doing incredible things there. And you know what's making it possible? A lot of people who are given a lot of money. Money is not the problem. And one of the ways you know if you think money is the problem is you are bitter and angry towards people who have more than you have. See, money is not a bad thing. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. Job was very wealthy, and it says that God considered him righteous. Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes says that it is good and right to enjoy the wealth that God gives to us. The Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. It says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And that means that the problem is not money. But the problem is something deep inside every single one of us. And Paul puts his finger right on it in this passage. He's, multiple times, he says in chapter eight, verse 11, that he wants the Corinthians to, to have an eager willingness in their giving. He says in chapter nine, verse seven, he says, I don't want you to give reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, here's what Paul is saying. God does not just want you to give. God wants you to want to give. Let me ask you a question. Does that describe you? (laughs) That does not describe me, okay? Is Is there an eagerness inside you to give? Is there a cheerfulness? Can you just not keep yourself... From giving, because you're so excited to give. See, generosity is not the natural posture of the human heart. The natural posture of the human heart is not to give as much as we can, but it is to get as much as we can. And research has shown this. Did you know that the average American gives away 2% or less of their income? It's not a whole lot better in the church, actually. The statistics are not that much better. You see, our our natural posture is not generosity, and there are a lot of reasons for this, more than we kind of have time to go into this morning, but I'll give you two quick ones. Some of us, we think that money will make us happy. If we can just have more, we'll be happy. And Jim Carrey, he once famously said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it is not the answer. Some of us think money will make us happy. Some of us... We, we think that money can make us secure and safe. Some of us we'd never say this out loud, but we actually think that money can shield us from suffering. Money cannot shield you from suffering. I, I, I just read um, Phil Knight's memoir, Phil Knight, who started Mikey, and he's worth like 50 billion dollars, so the brothers got some coin, okay? And, and it's this incredible story. You know how he ends his book? He ends his book talking about how sad he is over losing his adult son. Story of incredible wealth, and yet immense suffering has come into his life. Money cannot protect you from suffering. Money cannot make you happy, but we think that it can. And so we try to get as much as we can. Now, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, you do not identify as a Christian, I want you to think about this this morning because an irreligious view of the world, a view of the world that says there is no God, that we came from nothing and when we die, we go to nothing, would tell you that there is nothing at all wrong with living your life to get In fact, if if you're actually consistent, if you're logically consistent, that's the only thing that you should do because this life is all there is. And so you should enjoy it while it lasts. But you see, Christianity comes along and it says something really different. It says that, listen, friends, if you don't learn to deal, you and I, if we do not learn to deal with this problem that is deep inside us, there is incredible danger. And Paul gets at this, In verse 15 of chapter 8. He says, Look at the worship God. He says, As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Now, this is a quote actually from Exodus chapter 16. And in Exodus chapter 16, the Israelites, they're wandering around in the wilderness. God has rescued them from slavery in Egypt but now they're walking around and they don't have food to eat. And so what does God do? He sends them manna. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in Sabbath, in the spiritual discipline of Sabbath. God sends them manna, he sends them bread from heaven, but he only sends them enough to gather for each day. If if you tried to gather more than you needed for that day, if if you tried to hoard it, if you tried to store it away, For a rainy day, you know what happened to the manna? It rotted. It rotted. You'd wake up the next morning, and there would be the stench of maggots all over your tent. And what Paul is saying is, if you don't learn to deal with the problem of money deep inside you, and friends, let me say this. This is for poor and rich alike. Okay? This is for all of us in this room. That if we don't learn to deal with the problem of money, Paul is saying it will rot you. It will rot you. It will rot your soul. You will not own your money. Your money will own you. And it will turn you into a person who is always discontent. Always wishing that you had more. It'll turn you into a shallow person because you think money is what makes people important. And it'll turn you into someone who is not equipped to handle the suffering, the inevitable suffering that will come into your life. Is there anything that can help us with the problem? Is there anything that can make us generous? Yes. But they are not principles. So we need more than principles. And so Paul comes to us and he says, listen, here are two things that you need to overcome this problem. Here's the first. First, you have to see your giving as part of a greater story. It's part of a greater story. Um, I don't know if you heard, but a couple years ago, uh, the, the company um, Cards Against Humanity decided that they were going to do something a little unique for Black Friday. And for Black Friday, they were going to dig a hole. A really big hole. So they started this, this GoFundMe campaign and anybody could give to this hole. Anybody could give to the hole. They called it the Holiday Hole. And you know what the purpose of digging this hole was? It was to see how big and how deep they could dig a hole. And so they said, anybody can give to it, and as long as the money keeps flowing in to pay for the excavator and the people to dig this hole, we're going to keep digging this hole. It lasted several days. You can go online and look at pictures of this hole. It's not very interesting. It looks like every other hole. You know what they raised to dig this hole? $100,000 and then some. You know, and it was, it was done as a joke, but if you, if, you th- if you really think about it, this is what we, this, we do this all the time. We pour our money into holes. We pour our money into things that have no ultimate significance and that will not last. And what Jesus does is he says, I want to invite you into a greater story a greater story for your giving. And so Paul says in chapter nine, verse six, he says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. This is one of the most abused verses in the entire Bible. This verse is not saying, oh, I see how it works. I give God a little bit of money and then he gives me a lot of money back in return. That's not what this is saying, because think about the metaphor, the metaphor of sowing. It's it's the metaphor of planting. You know, when you plant a seed in the ground, you do not get the same thing back in return. You know what you get? You get something very different. You get a tree. You get a plant. You get a flower. You get a fruit. And what Paul is saying is when you give money, when you're generous— you, you don't get the same thing back. You get something different back. Well, what do you get back? Look at the very next verse. He tells us, he says, as it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor and their righteousness endures forever. And then Paul uses that word righteousness again in the very next verse when he says that God will use your generosity to increase a harvest harvest of righteousness. Now, when we hear the word righteousness, it sounds like a very churchy kind of religious word. We think, we think moral goodness. We think, oh, they're so righteous. That's not what this word means. This word means something much more wonderful, something much more cosmic in nature than just kind of individual morality. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, it talks about the day. When Christ will return. We've actually been singing about it this morning. When Christ will return and he is going to deal a final death blow. And this is what 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 says. It says, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Listen to this. The home of righteousness. Heaven is the home of righteousness. That doesn't just mean it's a place where a bunch of good people are walking around. No, it is talking about a world that is fully healed. A world that is made whole. A world where everything wrong will be made right. A world where we are not lamenting over the brokenness of our city anymore, but we are celebrating God's healing over all things. It will be a world where there are no more poor and no one goes hungry. And all sickness and suffering and oppression will be done away with. And you see, friends, heaven is the home of righteousness. And what Paul is saying is that when you give, when you are generous with your money, you are sowing seeds of heaven into this world. It means that poverty is being met and needs are being met and people are meeting God and the world is becoming more of what it was meant to be. And see Paul says if you really want to deal if you really want to deal with this problem that is deep inside us and I just I hope we're all honest enough with ourselves this morning to say it's in me and I can see it but I want to be free. And Paul says if you want to be free You've got to see that your giving is a part of a much greater story. But here's the second thing, because that's not all, and we'll end with this. You have to see your giving as, a, as part of a greater story, but you have to see your giving as a response to a generous Savior. If you hear nothing else that I say this morning, can I invite you to tune back in? Friends, here is the Christian gospel in all of its wonder. It applies to every area of your life, and it even applies to your money. And if you want to be free, you need to drink deeply of the gospel. Paul says in verse 9, at the very beginning of the text, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. When you look at Jesus' life, there is a great paradox. His life was one of... Ultimate wealth and extreme poverty. For all of eternity, Christianity says that Jesus lived in the riches of heaven. He had everything that he could ever desire. And yet, when he took on flesh and he came into this world, do you know how he came? He came poor. His entire life was one of poverty. He was born poor. Jesus was not born in a nice, comfortable hospital room. He was born in a feeding trough for animals. And he was not born on the right side of town, but he was born in an unforgettable part of the Roman Empire. He was surrounded by poverty, and then he lived his life poor. Most of the material possessions that he had in his life were provided to him by a group of devoted women who gave themselves to following him. And Jesus said himself, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Virtually everything in his life was borrowed. He used borrowed boats to get into lakes, and he used borrowed bread to multiply it to feed the masses. And when he came riding into the city... Before his death, he came on a borrowed donkey. He lived his life poor. You know how he died? He died poor. He died with with one possession on him and it was a single loincloth. And then he was buried poor. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. See, when you look at this paradox, you have to say, you have to ask, why would he give all of this up? Why would he give up All the riches of heaven. And you know what the wonder of the gospel says? It says that of all the riches that God had, there was one that he did not. And it was us. It was you and me. And that is what this table points us to today. It points us to a God who is generous. It points us to a God who did not come into this world saying, what is the least amount that I can give? But a God who came saying, I'm willing to go all the way. A God who did not just give us his money, but who gave us his life. And see, if if you really want to deal with the problem, you've got to see him. To the degree that you see that he gave all that he had away for you, Then you will be able to give away some of what you have for him. And you know what you'll be? You'll be free. You'll be free. You'll be free to be generous towards God and others and his kingdom in the same manner in which he has been generous to you. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he says, this is my body, broken for you, eat this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he blessed it saying, this cup represents the new covenant which is shed in my blood for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, how how hard it is for us to believe that You would pour out Yourself for us like this. And yet the promise of this table is that that is exactly what has happened. God, we give You thanks for all that You have done for us and Your Son, that You spared nothing in order to win us to Yourself. Would you help us to believe that this morning? Some of us in this room, we've never known what it's like to know a love like that. We've never fathomed a God who could actually love us like this. A God who wouldn't come to us and say, you give to me, but a God who comes to us and says, no, first I have to give to you, receive. Would you help us to receive this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.